Big Adventures with Brian Durker is brought to you by Arizona River Runners. Just getting started on your own big adventures? Arizona River Runners' three-day Grand Canyon heli, ranch, and raft trip blends authentic western ranch experience with world-class whitewater. Explore secret waterfalls and drift to sleep on the banks of the Colorado River under a blanket of stars. Longer trips are available as well. Let Arizona River Runners take care of the details on your own big adventure. Visit RaftArizona.com. Big Adventures. I'm Brian Durker. You know, every community is lucky enough to, within their population, find totally unique, gifted, brilliant people. And I'm always surprised that this community has so many of those types. Brad Demick is absolutely a big leading member of that club. He's a leading-edge boat builder, does historical boats, does pretty leading-edge new designs on Grand Canyon dories and other dories, drift boats. So I'm really excited to have Brad here. Big adventures with Brad Demick. Brad, it's so good to have you back. I may as well admit to the listener that this is Brad's second visit with me because we lost his first visit. We lost? <laughs> and enough said on that. Brad, it's great to have you back. And, you know, uh, I've thought a lot about a lot of things since our last visit, so I'm kind of a little bit up. But if we could talk a little bit about your babydom and your childhood to start this thing. Uh, that would be fantastic. My babydom was in a hollow east of Ithaca, New York, where Appalachia meets New England, Ellis Hollow. Walked around in the woods a lot, played in my sandbox, played on my rope swing, pogo stick, bicycle. Didn't play that well with others, mostly solitary. Did you go through high school and everything? Yeah, in, in yeah. That? What, Ith- what were your high, high school, school years like, Brad? Uh, horrid. I hated school. I was miserable. Just uh, <laughs> wanted to do anything but go to school. My, the highlight was an underground paper some friends of mine and I put together for a year or two. Oh, cool. Yeah, I can see that would be right down your alley. Yes. And then what year did you graduate? It must have been... 71. And did you immediately bolt out of the area when you graduated from I high school? I fled. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine had told me about this crazy hippie school out in Arizona, Prescott College. and So I applied and they... Amazingly took me in spite of my grades. And here I am in Arizona. I'm pretty surprised a guy like you didn't get good grades. Well, I was uh, uh, what they call an underachiever. Well, and how was your attendance in, in high school, Poor. Brett? You know, that Poor. generally leads, one leads <laughs> to the other. I took up being a handyman. And uh-huh. uh, I was earning a whopping 250 an hour swinging a hammer when I wasn't in school. Well, you know. Keep a little money coming in. And so you did four years in Prescott? Yeah, full four years. You kind of learn about river running and stuff at Prescott College, was it? You started well, kayaking? Or? The first the first thing they do at Prescott College with a kid is take us out for three weeks on basically an outward bound trip. And mine was down the Grand Canyon. 
So that got me interested. Pulled a card there, didn't you? Yeah. Nice. And then uh, the next year, some buddies of mine were doing a private, and we did that over Thanksgiving and summer of 73. They were all big, strong guys, and they got on the Forest Service hotshot crew, and I washed out immediately and uh, had to find something to do. So I applied to the motor companies because I knew a weenie arm geek like me couldn't be a roboman. Uh, Canyoneers here in Flagstaff picked me up. Yeah, and I remember your Canyoneers days. The early days, Canyoneers is a a motor company with a lot of history. It was uh, the user days were originally Mexican hat expeditions run by Norm Nevels, uh, the original whitewater guy down in Grand Canyon as far as commercial, small commercial wooden boats and stuff. Canyoneers, on the other hand, ran really big, long, huge motorboats. Not mm-hmm. Esri eggs, but something real similar. Uh, four tubes with frames out over them. And the Sea Craft. I, I think it. the Sea Craft, there were a the couple letter of them. C. C. I think C-craft. there were a couple of them that were 40 feet long. They eventually got that long. When yeah. I ran them, they were, you could almost drive them. They were uh, only about 32 feet. Yeah. Russ Sullivan had redesigned them and made them. Pretty sporty for a Canyoneers. Right, right. So, and then uh, you were doing that, and you obviously saw other ways of doing things. Yeah, they uh, put me in charge of their rowing program that they were starting up because I had rowed a boat from Diamond Creek down. So I was the senior oarsman. And uh, (laughs) so Tim Cooper and a fellow named Jim Norton and I, Started up the rowing program, did one trip a year. But in uh, 1977, when they turned the river off, Ken Slight, who's an amazing old character, just turned 90. He was on the water, and they were day eight on a 10-day trip, and had only gotten to Phantom, and they needed a relief boatman. And I got the call, and I, I, I just went, you know, I think I want to go work for Ken. I'm tired of running the big motorboats. And you you realized then and there that you could row even with those weenie little arms. Yeah, even with my weenie little arms, I could make a big old Chabasco go down the river. Right. So, yeah, so I uh, I finished that year, told Gaylord I was done at Canyoneers, and uh, talked to Ken Slight and talked to Martin Litton about going to work for Dory's, and they both hired me. So I worked for Ken for a year, and then... Off to Doryland. So, you know, I look at the those old days, and when you were working for Martin, and then I remember you moving into some just crazy back-to-back schedules of being up in desolation, and then the I don't know if the what other rivers were involved, but tell us a little bit about those scatterbomb schedules that you were doing for a few years. Yeah, I'd start uh, first trip out in April and just back-to-back them until October if I could. And But some of them were like you were traveling up to Utah and doing— Yeah, when I was—I I mean, I've always loved the upper basin more than most Grand Canyon boatmen. If I don't get up there in a year, it, it bumps me out. So Yeah, it's fantastic. Tampa, Lodore, Desolation, mm-hmm. San Juan, Cataract. And when I worked for Kent Slight, we did all of those. And, you know, you'd put in and take out on the same day sometimes. It was just nuts. Yeah, those those were, I remember you were charging hard. You'd come in at night and leave in the morning, and you were, you were mm-hmm. rocking it back then. I was always impressed with the amount you took on. 
There have been different kinds of adventures that you have had, but one of them I wanted to ask you in detail about was when you and Tim Cooper kayaked from Cameron, Arizona, down to the river that first time. Well, that was uh, March, I think, of 1978. Big, big winter. Everything was running. Yeah, it was the year after the low water, yeah. Yeah, and the... uh, the Navajo reservation was in a state of emergency. It had turned into a swamp. And Tim and I got this idea that uh, the little Colorado's never been run. We should run it because we fancied ourselves uh, great kayakers. Leading edge. Well, at the time, I mean, we we couldn't keep up with amateurs today, but at that time we were pretty badass for you know, oh, that's, these yeah, you plastic boats. I had raced in the nationals. You know, I was a... A pretty serious kayaker. So we asked around. Our our friend Jim Norton had tried to do it in a ducky a few years earlier and sank his boats and had to hike out. And and that was it. There was some Boy Scouts alleged to have tried it and failed. And so we got our buddy Russ Sullivan to drop us off at Cameron in our uh, kayaks, and off we went. And uh, it was very exciting. It's it's a beautiful river, as you know. But it's extremely narrow, uh, chocolate muck instead of water. And things went well for the first day and a half. And then we got down into the waterfalls. The last 13 miles of the little Colorado are spring-fed when it's not running mud. And it's just beautiful blue travertine waterfalls. And People weren't really running waterfalls at the time, but we we gave it a shot, and uh, one after another, flipping over, crashing, burning, but uh, making it through. And then I finally got into a giant hole at what? uh, Atomizer, was it? Atomizer Falls. And I got sucked back into this horrid reversal and swam and came out and able to gather all our gear together, and, and we continued on. And made it to the confluence and drank a bottle of cognac and hauled ass for Phantom in the snow. It was snowing. And we we had agreed with uh, Steve Bledsoe. He was doing some sort of college trip to Phantom and deadheading out. And he was going to take our boats out a week later. So we just had to hide them. So we went blazing down the river figuring, you know, what are the odds of running into the park service on 10% of the river in March? Well... 100%. A hundred percent. There they were. Uh, when you pulled into Phantom? They or? were at Hans, like seven Ranger boats. And we could see them pulling out cameras and yelling and waving. And we just went, oh, we can outrun those guys, which we did. But we did not outrun their radio. Radio frequencies. Imagine that. They had radios. <laughs> So, so somebody was waiting for you at the beach? or Well, we pulled in up at Roy's Beach and we're burying our boats when we heard this voice from above. Dig them back up, boys. You're busted. So we, we got uh, written up there at the Ranger headquarters. And George Marsick was down at Phantom at the time and saw this going on. And, and uh, any enemy of the Park Service was a friend of Fred Harvey's. So they took us in fed us royally and washed our clothes and dried us and put us up for the night. Oh, cool. A big old party. And then we hiked out the next day to 
stand before the magistrate. That's right. You yeah. had a little date with the magistrate. <laughs> right? Just right there. It was a bargain, though. And he fined us $100 each. And, uh, and then we had to pay to have our boats helicoptered out. But two boats for 120 bucks was a steal at that time. <laughs> so 160 bucks a piece. For God, we should go do it again. A great takeout and notoriety, you know. <laughs> Well, you guys got tremendous notoriety, and I tip. I've everybody's always tipped their hat to you guys uh, for being the first guys to do that. Because uh, some of us followed, and uh, without your steely guidance, we'd have been too scared. Probably. Oh, somebody would have done it before long. People were getting pretty ballsy in their little pointy boats. Yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. And then, but as as time has gone on, you've done a lot of river trips all over the world, really. And uh, let's talk a little bit about your Sobek days. Well, there I was, sitting on the side of the river and running a trip for you, actually. It was a Humphrey Summit research trip. And I was going through a breakup, and this oars boat pulled in with a guy I kind of knew, Mike Boyle. Mm-hmm. He said, well, right, what are right. you pouting about. Why don't you come down to Chile with me this winter and run the B.O.B.O.? Because he was working for Sobek. And I said, okay. And so I tried to learn a few words of Spanish and off I went, did a kayak along, you know, pay my $200 fare. But they hired me at the end of that trip. And I worked for Sobek for five or six years. And, and those of you guys that don't know, uh, the the B.O.B.O. down there was like the gem of one of the great gem rivers of South America and ferocious rapids, big, big technical, steep river, but also culturally people living along the way that uh, were super wonderful, friendly, indigenous tribal people. And then also the Chileans. It was just an incredible place to be adventuring through, wasn't it? It was, it was fantastic. I absolutely loved it, except, as Mike Boyle said, I only get beat up every other Saturday. There was one rapid lava south that was just absolutely horrendous. Yeah, it certainly I was. I finally drowned there, but came back. Is that right? Yeah. You you blacked out? I, I never came up, and uh, I just kind of gave up, and, you know, that wistful... Oh, that's how Brad died, sort of feeling. And Did all your friends flash before you? Like, did you no. see me? <laughs> <laughs> no, they were, all the crew was down rescuing one of my passengers who came up face down and saved him. And I just floated off into an eddy and surfaced and breathed for a while. Wow, I've never heard that story. Mm. But these things, Lava South, uh, a lot of the guys, you know, Grand Canyon being what Grand Canyon is, a lot of the guys got down there and saw this thing and named it after Lava Falls, which would be considered Lava Central anymore, but Lava North. And uh, just absolutely a tough piece of whitewater. As I recall, I was lucky enough to get down there and run with Brad. A couple of years later, but uh, I remember the one that got my attention going in there was uh, Jugbuster. <laughs> it was a weird, like, little corkscrew steep. That was the damnedest move. That was a weird rapid. That, that one really got my attention as far as this yeah. is a different river than I've 
been on. Yeah. And yeah, it was it was great because I worked there all winter long for five years, and then you know doing highly technical rock moves in an inflatable boat, and then running dories in giant squishy water all summer long, just the opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Of technical. No boating. kidding. Totally different games. I learned a lot. And then um, where else did you run up in Alaska for Sobek song? I did. I, I remember I that. worked yeah. for uh, just a little bit in the summers, uh, either for Sobek or for Bart Henderson, Chilkat Guides. And got one winter in Africa with Sobek on the Omo and the Rafiji. Traveled all over the place. Got deathly malaria and all kinds of things. That was great. That's right. I remember you were in Africa. What, were those African adventures pretty amazing, huh? Both culturally and the terrain and the rivers. Amazing, and- appalling, astounding, uh, life-changing. To, to You get off the, the tourist track in Africa and see the other side, the side that tourists don't see. It It, it is uh, what a continent. It's I mean, truly so, Many people working so hard, good people who are never going to get anything yeah. anywhere. And but uh, generally happy people. Generally, I, yeah. I didn't run into the real unhappy people so much when I was down there. But generally, pretty happy people. Yeah, I was. Uh, that was something. So moving on a little bit from rivers, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about two other major subjects in your life. One of them being, you're an author, and you've written some great books, uh, Sunk Without a Sound, about Glenn and Bessie Hyde. Uh, what are your other labels? It's uh, Well, the first one was a collaboration uh, about Buzz Holmstrom, first guy to solo the green in Colorado, worked with Cork Conley and fellow, yeah. Vince Welch, and then a big fat biography of Burt Loper, Bert Loper, that's who, right. Who died at the oars at the age of 80. The Very Hard Way is that book. You've also written a lot of articles, this, that, and the other, but uh, you guys should look up Brad Dimmick's books because they're they're good reads, all of them. Um, mm-hmm. and, well, uh, buy them. Do you have you don't have to read them, just buy them. Do you, are, are you pinning anything Not lately? Not really. Or? I do the occasional article. Yeah. Under duress. But, uh-huh. uh, I, you know, writing's really hard work. It's not that much fun. Right. I'd rather build boats. Well, and you're good at writing. It would be a very difficult job for me to, to, to spell words correctly and, you know, come up with the right punctuations. <laughs> um, the other subject that I think is uh, probably the most fascinating, uh, one of the more fascinating talents that you have is building boats. And Brad has uh, built some amazing boats that are historically correct as to their design, original design of historical boats and stuff. Go go into the historical boats a little bit, and then we'll talk about some dories and stuff. Well, I, I uh, it, it's all this one convoluted mess of wanting to learn the old stories and what were they doing and what were they up against and and then building these historic boats to see what they were like to run. So the oldest one I've actually built was a 1911 Galloway-style boat, a replica of the Edith, Emery Kolb's boat. 
and uh, your brother Daniel and I built right. That. Beautiful result too. Uh-huh. That's a beautiful boat. It's a bitch to row, but um, they were a step beyond the old Powell Whitehall boats. But they're still too long and skinny. Right. And so when the current catches them, adios. And let's put just do a quick little uh, segue into Powell's boats. Uh, Brad and I were involved in a really cool project. It was uh, it was a uh, uh, National Geographic drama documentary sort of thing on the Pell's first expedition. And we casted it with all our friends and had uh, somehow I got the permission to go grab the IMAX boats, which were original design from the blueprints from the guys that actually built Pell's boats a hundred years before that or a hundred plus some change. And they're a clinch nail, uh, kind of uh, from the style of probably whaling vessels or something. You know, well, they're they have a, a big central keel. They're a Whitehall boat, which is a uh, it's a harbor boat that goes really fast, and they're narrow, they're long, they have a real sharp bow and a real sharp sharp tail where it leaves the water, so they they're almost wakeless. But they were the fastest boat going. That's the boat they would use to get out to the. The big sea ships, when they were coming in, you had to get out there first and make all the deals for some other merchant beat you to it. Ah. So they won all the rowboat races, and they were good in chop. Powell thought, oh, that, that'll be perfect. Well, they're not. They're horrible in white water because you've got to turn quickly and avoid rocks, neither of which a Whitehall does worth a damn. So Powell had a lot of trouble with them. And we had a lot less because we'd run rowboats and kayaks and sweep boats yeah, and we had motor a, boats. We had and, a pretty substantial crew operating. Yeah, I mean, we had literally hundreds of years of experience to work with. So they can be run, and they're kind of fun, but a bit terrifying. And it, it was called The First Journey, this project, but I think you can still find it in the archives of uh, National Geographic. Um, I don't think so. I've looked for it, but I've never found it. They they put it under another title, <laughs> and I think it's. Uh, I'll look into it. And maybe later, later we'll we'll get that information. But uh, a big reason they were so horrible is they had this big raw board straight keel that ran just as straight as an arrow all the way down the boat, really. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't make for turning very good. No. And, well, to carry on to the other boats, what was the next one you built? It was a— Well, if we go chronologically— Let's do it. Let's do it. Not the order I built them, but the age. I mean, I've worked on Whitehalls. And then we built the Galloway boat, and then Dan uh, helped— with the uh, building of the Holmstrom boat, which was the last lapstrake old-style Galloway boat, but it was heavily modified by this guy, Buzz Holmstrom, to be really a good whitewater boat. And we built that up in Oregon, finished it out at Dan's shop, and I've taken that all over the West and down Grand Canyon four times. The boat's never flipped. It's a joy to row, a little little short strokes because you bang your knuckles otherwise, but... A great little boat, said at the time to be the greatest whitewater boat ever built. And then uh, we built a Neville-style boat, the 1938-style plywood, like a very wide Galloway boat that's shaped like a flat iron that sags in the middle. 
And uh, that carried more, but still had no place for passengers. And it's, my God, is that a wet boat to row? And then we get to the dories. And we built uh, a variety of dories, but they're mostly based on the 1971 Briggs. Yeah. The Emerald Mile, a lot of people have read that book. Well, that was the prototype of the Briggs Grand Canyon Dory. And it's still uh, the creme de la creme, the original Briggs boats are like having a Stradivarius. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they, they've got the nice lines and they're a great size. They're a lot of... They're sexy. And they've run nice too. They're pretty amazing. Yeah. And so we've taken that design and refined it. Now I'm getting into boat building. But yeah, well, that's fine, Brad. Yeah, Briggs was was a cowboy kind of a boat builder. You know, he learned from a guy up there, and they just uh, <clears throat> would kind of come up with an idea and build some forms and build the boat. Uh, I've been training classically as a boat builder, where you 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 break it down and take all those lines and refine them till they're perfect, and then put it all back together. And you can get your bevels way better, like the bow post twists from very blunt to very pointed from uh, top to bottom. And Briggs never did that. So the boats we're building now are an idealized form of the classic Briggs. Oh, interesting. And, and were his boats, did he run off of a, uh, off of a template? He built what you call a jig. And it's this giant wooden contraption that he would uh, make all the ribs and bolt them on there or clamp them on there and a bow post and a transom and then slap on the sides, put on a bottom, flip it over, deck it, and uh, sell it to Martin Litton for, I think, $1,240. Oh, is that what? Yeah. Is that all? No wonder he went out of business. Well, no wonder he bought those boats. Yeah. <laughs> but Martin, Martin once told Rudy when he got that first one, that first Briggs boat, he said, well, I hope to get at least five or six trips out of it. And uh, out of 36 of those boats, there's only one boat that no longer exists, that they're immortal. And you fix them and fix them and fix them. And, and yeah, some of I'm them, still running one. Yours, is, yours, I think, is one of the prettiest ones. It's of course large. it is. Not necessarily the paint, but the lines of that boat are remarkably nice. They're very well. They've, they've all been busted up and rebuilt, and so the lines have changed. Uh, right. No, no two Briggs boats are identical anymore. Last time I saw you, you were talking about little dories. What, what's the story there? Oh, the dory yak. Um, there used to be this thing. Well, they still exist called sport yaks. Little Tupperware orange. God awful, ugly little uh, oh. bathtubs shaped things that were originally made for rowing out to your yacht and back. And in the 1960s, Bill Belknap and his family started running them as whitewater boats and then started a business teaching people to row everybody in their own little sport yak. And people loved it, but it sort of fell away. And we've been talking for years about creating a, a dory that size, a high performance, basically, sport yak. Randy Fabrice built those oozles back in the yeah, he- 80s, but I think they were a little too narrow, a little too tippy. And so we took the, the classic Briggs line and shrank it, but kept a lot of the width and uh, made these things, so we call them Doriacs. And we just took 
two of them through Grand Canyon, through everything. They're nine feet long, and they're amazing. So they really are working out and fun to run and easy to yeah. maneuver. And- I just sold one on my way here today. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> they're, uh, they're amazing. And then we're also expanding the Briggs design into a bigger boat because Briggs designed it in 1971 when people were smaller and they didn't have these giant industries geared to marketing all the crap you need to take down a river, you know, so people didn't show up with all this stuff. And back then we didn't have the vast quantities of food, you know, and chairs and pads and da, 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 da. So we need bigger boats now. And so we designed a, a big size Briggs that we've got a couple out at Canex and five, I think, at, at uh, Azra and quite a few out there privately now. And that works good. But just uh, two days ago, we designed another boat and it's a short, fat variation of the Briggs. Oh. The Goldilocks, we're calling it. It's the, it's the just right, we think, maybe. A friend of mine is a welder up in, in Moab, came up with the name because he's trying to design that boat too, Eddie Line Welding. But we're just, you know, everything, all water sports, gravity sports have gotten short and fat. The skis are short and fat now. Yeah. Uh, kayaks. kayaks are short and fat. Surfboards are short and fat. Everything is working better short and fat. And to a, to a preposterous level. I mean, if you'd showed what you call a ski today to yourself 40 years ago, you'd have laughed your ass yeah, off. You no, go, that's, you that's ridiculous. So. Yeah. But so we're yeah, trying to make a, a short, fat, commercial size story. Are you uh, wor- working on one already or is it just in uh, the we just, drawing phase? We just drew it two days ago and we're going to build it and we're going to build more of those Dory Yaks. Oh, you are going to build more of those? Oh, people want them. I can see why. That's a, it's a, nine feet. Huh? How wide is it? It's, I should know that off the top of my head. It's a three foot wide bottom. I think it's about five feet at the Orlocks runs. So it's amazing. Eight foot, three inch oar. Yeah, one of the guys rowing one last trip just rowed up with this goofy grin. He goes, I feel like I'm cheating on my wife. <laughs> this is so sensual. <laughs> oh my! Yeah, you you dory boatmen get that way though, you yeah. know. So boat building's been a blast. I've got two people working for me that are as psychotic as me about it, and so we just have fun. Well, you're you're a, a tremendous builder, and there's no boat you couldn't build. I don't believe in watching you. And with that, uh, Brad has an incredible residence that years ago was a hillside. Can you kind of explain the pole house a little bit? Because that was a pretty cool building. Yeah, I a uh, unique. took a course in from some lunatic here in Flagstaff, and uh, he convinced us that uh, building on poles was the way to go. So you have no foundation, you just have these poles sticking up out of the ground. So it's sort of like post and beam only without all the bracing because the pole going into the ground provides the bracing. And you can build on any terrain. So we built on the side of a hill up by Lowell Observatory. 16 poles on the side of the hill with giant beams bolted every which way and then no weight-bearing walls. So it's all open. It's a 
It's an amazing place. I, I love it. Well, I was there when the first, from the time you poked the holes in there, and it's it's aged nicely, you know. I mean, all those years have gone by, and you've done all this detail work and beautiful wood. You know, everything's custom in it because there's not, it's not riding on the perfectly square, flat level lines. It's a uh, goes from pole to pole originally, framework wise, but the work you've done. You know, to fill the spaces and the kitchen, everything's got a custom oh, touch yeah. to it. And it is a beautiful place. Yeah, a lot of the river community has their hands in that, doing different things, always trying to get the local artists involved. So it's, it's just a joy to live there. And with this COVID quarantine nonsense, uh, my lady friend Dawn and I have been cleaning and detailing, and it's all sparkly right now. It's it's just wonderful to walk around in there. I'll bet it's beautiful, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a remarkable lot. And then you built a boathouse down down below the pole house, so that's Fretwater's main. Yeah, great big uh, garage mahal down in the driveway, two-story thing full of boats. Yep. Too many boats. It's a beautiful thing. But we, it's a beautiful uh, thing. We got a little postcard on the wall that says, you can't beat this place for fun. And, <laughs> yeah. Oh, we have so much fun building boats there. Well, and what a great place to quarantine. You can just build boats all day and never leave the house. Yeah. Uh, what kind of woods are you using in your boats lately? I'm pretty traditional in the way I build the uh, the old drift boats. <clears throat> have a, a skeleton, a frame in them, made of Port Orford cedar. And nobody does that anymore except me. Most people are are doing away with all the skeletal work and just gluing the plywood together. It's called stitch and glue. Or doing away with the plywood even and using uh, foam and fiberglass, sheets of foam and fiberglass. But I just love the traditional look, the feel, the strength of them, and the smell. Oh, my God, Port Orford cedar is such a wonderful smell. Yeah, I remember you got that first shipment of the Port or for cedar, is, are you still working from that original? No, that all went into the Julius. That, that went into that the Holmstrom Julius. That Holmstrom boat. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just ordered another $5,000 worth yesterday. So um, you're, you you can still get it? And, uh, yeah, there's one uh, on Sawyer that still cuts it. Uh, they get a, the contracts with the Forest Where does it come from? Uh, right up around Coquille, Oregon. It's, it only grows in a very tiny area in the whole galaxy uh 10 miles wide 50 miles long mm, okay. on the, the coastal range of southern oregon a uh-huh. little bit into california wow and so that's where it comes from and is it renewable or is it, does it grow fast enough and uh they say it does forest service claims they're harvesting sustainably most of the port orford cedar was wiped out in the 50s by root rot because it used to grow in the valley floors, but now it only grows on the slopes. Uh, but there's still a lot of it. But you got to really look to find it. Oh, yeah. Oh. And then the plywood is all uh, industrial, marine grade out of Indonesia. So a mahogany-like uh-huh. thing. It's the same stuff they make those doors out of at Home Depot, you know, the Luon. But it's a real high grade of it with... And do people do people handle that in the states, or do you have to personally import it? I have to get it out of L.A. Yeah, it's got a shipment of it a couple of weeks ago. 
Well, another cool thing Brad's doing is casting uh, hardware. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, well, bronze casting. casting. Um, there's a lot of parts for a boat that you you can't buy. They don't make them. Uh, like I want them, and I took a course at boat school in bronze casting and went berserk. And so we cast like all the the finish washers and the oarlocks and the oar stands and the breastplates and the bow eyes and the stern eyes. We do all that up in my driveway. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's remarkably different than anything you'll see on any other boat. I mean, it's really cool, the the ironworks that you've got integrated, or I mean, the brass. Is it is it brass or bronze. is it bronze? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Silicon bronze. But one of the things we're doing is recycling oarlocks, like uh, the big rental outfits like uh, Saba and Pro, mostly Pro, Moen Kopi. They get all these bent oarlocks back and uh, throw them in a bucket or throw them in a crate and don't know what to do with them because you can't bend them very many times before they'll break. So I melt them down and make them into other stuff. Brilliant, Bradley. Yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah, that's fantastic. Anytime we can repurpose materials and stuff, it's good for the world. Um, In regards to the world, what about this crazy time we're living in right now? This virus, the pandemic. Well, I've never been so relaxed in my life. Um, Nothing to do, nowhere to go except play and clean the house and build things. Just built a bird bath and planter pair of dories for the porch. Installing those this weekend. Uh, You know, like designing that new boat. Uh, It's working great for me because I was already phasing into retirement. Uh-huh. I did have a season scheduled this year, which is two out of three trips have been canceled. So I'm on unemployment for the first time in my life, which is great fun. I've, yeah, I've 800 never, bucks a week I'm getting just to sit here on my ass. Why would you ever go back to story. work? Um, you know, it's been that's kind of the same way for me. I've got a nice place here that I've been remodeling. And, uh, and kind of reorganizing all kinds of stuff and purging, you know, the work shed. And it's been really actually nice. But in my mind, it needs to get over with pretty soon. Well. To go boating. That's not up to us, is it? It certainly isn't. And it's certainly not up to our politicians, per se. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We won't go there today. Let's not. But, you know, another remarkable thing or outcome from what I have read and understand, the the closure of everything is letting a lot of natural things get back on its feet mm-hmm. because there aren't these crowds trampling it back down. Right. And uh, so, there, you know, it's amazing. Mother Nature has a way of repairing herself in a pretty, in pretty fast fashion, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like you've seen places that had a forest fire or something and then Both. two years later they look better than ever with maybe the exception of the taller trees but it's a, a kind of happening because of this thing's gone on for six weeks seven weeks now yeah and uh, some of the surrounding areas have really uh, benefited from everybody being stuffed away in their homes. Yeah, we were down there when the shit hit the fan. I was on a training trip with Can X. Oh, were you? People had those goddamn inreaches. 
You know? Oh, yeah. And so we kept getting these, oh, my God, shit hit the fan. Oh, my God, everybody's dead. Oh, my God, everything's no toilet paper. Uh, and we're down there going, <laughs> um, can we stay down Can we here? stay? Well, Jen was down there on one of her on a research trip, a little three boat road trip for eighteen days, and uh-huh. so, so they kind of had a clue it was going on right as they were leaving, mm-hmm. and uh, they were the last ones to launch before they shut everything down, and spent you know long enough to figure out that would be a good place to stay down there, mm-hmm. uh, and so back to those inreaches and communications on the sat phone or whatever. Dreadful. But, yeah, it, it is dreadful. But you look at the world, you know, and how crazy it is in regards to the cities, especially like look at what happened with New York City. You know, the, the mm-hmm. pandemic exploded in, in these different cities. But its its reach is just amazes me how mm-hmm. every little community has an event that, or, you know, somebody's gotten that, that little rascal you know, and then of course the reservation is a mm. remarkable density of the problem, and mm-hmm. still I don't think we're out of the wa- we're not out of the woods yet on it. Oh. No, remarkable, crazy time though. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. What will be the first river trip you do, Brad? If it isn't Grand Canyon, well, we're thinking of taking the Doriax out and poaching a few unregulated streams in the next couple of weeks. Uh, will you take those little little ones? Yeah, a little toy. I want toys. in on some of that. They are so fun. Are they a deck? Do they have hatches? Yeah, they're fully and- decked, four hatches. So you can have a fully supported trip beneath the decks. You know, you, you, you're taking a lot more than a backpacker would, but a lot less than a modern decadent boatman would take. Oh yeah, Somewhere you scale between. everything down. Like, did do you cut your toothbrush in half and? Yeah, yeah, and uh, pull out a few bristles from, from and take same, that tea bag label off. Don't even bring a hairbrush. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you just scale down a bit, and uh, they're great to sleep on. They're, they're just beautiful little boats. Are you going to have extra ones to where people can try them um, before they buy them? Demos, hard, Brad. Hard saying. I've got two of them in the driveway right now. Do you? That sounds cool. They're so cute. Oh, my God, they're cute. Well, Brad, I sure appreciate you taking the time to, you know, catch up again. You bet. Let a Grand Canyon River trip be your big adventure. I love you, man. Arizona River Runner's three-day, two-night trip trip gives you the enchantment of a Western ranch experience, the thrill of a helicopter ride through millions of years of geology, and the rush of Colorado River Rapids. Take a weekend to unplug as the Arizona River Runner's talented guides show you the best of what the Grand Canyon has to offer. Visit RaftArizona.com to learn more. Big Adventures is produced by Brian Durker, Margaret Knight, and me, Gavin Bookner. Bill Gleckler and his mandolin provide our music. If you like our show, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts.